Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. (laughs) Good morning, Kim. Where would we be if we didn't have a hitch? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a lovely morning outside and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with... Annie and Kim. That's right. And we've got lots of things to talk about this week. Uh, oh, there was the Marxist conference. We've got a little s- snippet from that, but it was about a very serious subject. It was about the neoliberalism uh, assault on uh, community health in our country. Yeah, the commercialisation of uh, basically... Suffering. Yeah, horrific. Yeah. Dreadful. But anyway, so we're going to hear from that, hear from Simone White about that. And we're going to also have a uh, uh, chat with Lou Wheeler, who's from Fairgo for Pensioners, uh, just before the budget. And uh, hopefully we'll also hear from uh, Dr. Noah Pathil later in the day. But uh, before we do that, we'll hear from uh, some, oh, from the station. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our local community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey or call the station during business hours to organise to do the survey over the phone. Call 94198377. So you can see we're serious. We repeated it within the last 10 minutes. They really do want to hear what you've got to say about the station. It's important. I think it's mm. a, a um, community radio-wide uh, oh, is it? Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah. So it's for 3CR, our listeners, but I think that uh, the CRN is actually doing a uh, look at uh, listenership right across the country. So you're part of something big, even if it, and you can tell because 3CR is big, mm. and uh, the alternative news and views are incredibly important in this particular framework. Uh, just... Uh, on the Monday, uh, last Monday, there was a pop-up, almost a pop-up demonstration rally in the city uh, around by uh, Refugee Action Collective. And this was after the shootings at uh, Manus that happened on the Friday before. Uh, so we went down there and uh, we got a little bit of information about what actually happened at Manus. 
So here we go. I mean, it seems that it was uh, drunken Navy personnel, like the detention centre's in the middle of a naval base, essentially. Um, I mean, that's been the the Papua New Guinea police have said that, uh, asylum seekers have said that, it was reported in the Age today, that seems to be the cause of it. But, you know, once again, after three years, asylum seekers and refugees are fearing for their lives after the the murder of uh, Reza Barati three years ago. There was a dispute at a soccer match. Yeah, yeah, so there was a... um, there was a drunk Navy personnel who was at a, a Navy guy that was at the... Uh, there was a soccer match outside the detention centre of some of the refugees. Uh, they say that uh, the drunk Navy personnel came up and was uh, kicking, uh, attacking people, trying to assault them. Uh, it seems that when he went back to the Navy base, he came back with more people who came back with rocks and sticks and at least one person with an automatic weapon. Crikey, Moses, and what, what about the guards? Uh, the well, most of the guards fled. There is the the Beru's uh, Bachani, Kurdish journalist on Manus, reported that one of the Australian guards was seriously beaten. Uh, that seems to be a fairly solid story, but we have not had uh, more information about that yet. Okay, and you tell me your name. Uh, Chris Breen, Refugee Action Collective. Uh, on Friday night, uh, the Manus Island detention centre was. Um, was, was descended into, into violence again um, because of uh, a shooting uh, by, naval, by naval officers at the um, Manus Island Detention Centre, which is actually located inside, inside a naval base. Um, and, and it's worth pointing out to start with that this, is, this really should, should never have happened. The, the detention centre shouldn't have been there in the first place, but this is an illegal detention centre. It was declared illegal by the PNG Supreme Court exactly a year ago, April last year. Um, it should have been... In April last year, the Supreme Court um, ordered the Australian and PNG governments to close it forthwith. Uh, they've, they've been delaying for, you know, a whole year. Um, you know, hundreds of these men's lives are continuing to deteriorate. Uh, we've had a, another death um, at, on Christmas Eve last year, uh, Faisal. He shouldn't have died either. That this, this detention centre should have been closed. And this is this is um, a miracle that that no no asylum seekers, no refugees were killed. Um, there are over a hundred shots um, um, shot into the te- detention centre, um, and the, the the federal government, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull and um, Peter Dutton, immigration minister, have you know claimed that the the shots were actually fired into the air, and th- this was immediately. Uh, contradicted and, and exposed to be a lie um, by, you know, photos were received by uh, asylum seekers on Manus Island who, you know, showed clear, clear photos, clear evidence of bullet holes in, um, in, in, in the detention centre, indeed in, inside the uh, refugees' um, bedrooms. Um, so as I said, it's, it's an absolute miracle that nobody um, was, was killed, although there, was, um, there were stones thrown into the detention centre by... Um, by locals, and, and, and um, we're, we're told three, three asylum seekers were struck um, by rocks, including some, some Australian guards, and uh, one, of those, one, of, one of those asylum seekers is, ha- had a very serious blow to the head and ha- had to receive stitches. Yeah, well, see, there you go, Manus Island, a report on what happened last yes. Friday. And Dutton has been very busy with the lies this week. Um, his take on what caused the shootings or the riot in the first place, not a riot, uh, was that apparently refugees were seen with a little boy. So I'm not sure what he was insinuating there. But How have you heard rude about, is that? Yeah, and it's 
simply not true. That's outrageous. It is outrageous. I don't think that man knows the truth um, from a lie anymore. Well, it's interesting. He's an ex-policeman. Isn't that interesting? Uh, tell us what the rack have got planned for tonight, uh, this afternoon. Uh, this, a- yeah, this afternoon uh, they have a snap action, which is at Well, uh, it's not a snap PM. action. It's, it's a, an actual, it's a little... Eyewitnesses, the case to close the camps and yeah. bring everyone here. Yeah, but, but where is it at? It's at uh, 3pm at the AMNF house. Yeah, which is the Nurses' Federation. Nurses' Federation. And it's 400, uh, sorry, 540 Elizabeth Street in the city. Yeah, which is just over the road from the uh, market, Vic Market, just a little oh, bit up Good. on the other side of the road. And so it's obviously a, uh, a panel. That's what I'm getting at. Yes, and they have Aziz from Manus via Skype as well. Um, and a bunch of other people, um, including nurses, speaking about mental health and so on. So I think it's a really good event to get to, considering we never think that they can stoop any lower on refugees, and then they do. The Setting Sun Short Film Festival, in its fourth year at the Sun Theatre Yarraville, April the 27th to the 30th. Featuring film categories and awards for the best in the West... The Best Overall, Women Filmmakers Program, Free Children's Program and more from some of Melbourne's best and award-winning filmmakers. Come on opening night, enjoy a free glass of bubbles and a comedy set by Janet McLeod from Cinema Fiasco. The Setting Sun Short Film Festival, where dreams are made. April the 27th to 30th. Free program and book tickets, settingsun.com.au. Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. On, on that uh, thing about Rack, Rack's got this bring them home, a slash tag bring them home school and workplace t-shirt action that's going on. When they go to, if you go to this event at 3pm today at the uh, Nurses Federation, you can also buy a t-shirt and it's got a, uh, uh, it's got this uh, whole thing around asking people to wear this t-shirt at work so that it becomes uh more uh, obvious to people. It's between uh, one to the first to the fifth of May is the T-shirt action. Remember how the uh, teachers, educators for refugees, wore their T-shirts at work, and it caused a real stir. And uh, they got don't bring politics into the schoolroom, which is. <laughs> It's like uh, Michaela Cash saying, uh, berating Labor Party for bringing politics into International Women Working Women's Day. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that's one of the things that they're doing. So if you want to know more about it, uh, hashtag bring them here, school and workplace T-shirt action. Anyway, we're going to move on because uh, we went to Marxism on Easter, didn't we? We did. It seems like ages ago. But I know. Only I last looked- week. <laughs> I know, I looked at it and I thought, when I was preparing this, I thought, oh my God, was that only last weekend? But anyway, um, I went to one of the sessions which was about uh, the neoliberal assault on our health systems. And there's a a whole range of fascinating things that came out of that, especially actually the audience, the speak outs. One of the great things Mm. about Marxism and uh, alternative, socialist alternative, is that you have this whole thing where you ask people to speak up. And I just find that really fantastic. But anyway, by the by, uh, it's very uh, 
compelling material, uh, quite frightening, uh, how uh, this is this seep, you know, bubbling evil that goes with neoliberalism, which is uh, uh, making money out of people's pain. Uh, everything's a uh, business opportunity, and uh, Simone White, uh, who is a uh, delegate for the ASU. Uh, in New South Wales and she works at the Rape and Domestic Service as Australia Phone Service in Sydney had some pretty interesting things to say so let's hear from Simone White Yeah, I'm going to sort of talk about two things um, with respect to the neoliberalisation of the community services sector which is also um, sometimes interchangeably called the social services sector or the human services sector it's, it's pretty much um, the same thing when you hear those terms um, and those two things are firstly just a very broad overview of the sort of process of neoliberalisation of the community services sector um, in Australia, but it kind of applies um, generally to the Western world. Um, and then secondly, I am just going to give a bit of an overview of the campaign that my co-workers and I uh, decided that we wanted to run uh, and fight um, with the backing of the ASU in New South Wales. Um, and that's to try to save our service, Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. It's a 50-year-old service that was established out of the women's liberation movement uh, in the 1970s. It was originally the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre uh, and it's expanded somewhat to become uh, the service that it is today. So we're fighting to um, save uh, pretty much the entire service because we've been running the 1-800-RESPECT National Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Service for the last six years and uh, what, what the Liberal government have done uh, in the last sort of year or so is hand over most of our funding to Medibank, um, a for-profit insurance company who are now making profits out of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, so we're fighting to save the service but also um, to save the jobs of about 100 women workers. The story of the community services sector, um, how the sector came into existence, how it started to expand um, and how very shortly after its inception um, how the mechanisms of neoliberal capitalism started to trash the sector and disband it and start this process that is accelerating at the moment um, wherein the sector is being privatised and outsourced uh, and human suffering is literally being turned into a, a commodity to make profits out of. That story is a, is a pretty terrible story um, but I think it's also a really instructive story just generally about Australian society and Australian capitalism and it's a story that parallels the neoliberal gutting of the community services and welfare states um, predominantly across the Western world in the last 30 to 40 uh, years or so. But I want to make the point that of all the countries that established welfare states and social services in, in the post-war period, which is when most welfare states uh, and the community services sector sort of came into existence, that Australia's welfare state um, and, com and community sector has consistently been amongst the worst. Um, in fact, the very worst when you look at the OECD countries uh, in general, so the sort of 20 to 30 or so OECD countries that um, have set up welfare states and that sort of have some semblance of community services, Australia really actually has pretty consistently ranked um, as having the worst out of those um, OECD countries. And I think that's potentially a bit of a surprise to, to a bunch of people. You know, that Australia is constantly touted as being the lucky country, that we're sort of 
constantly touted, politicians constantly tout that we have these, you know, impressive array of sort of essential community services and so on. I think there's sort of a fairly widely held view, or there has been, partly because the major parties constantly spruik this idea that there's endless pots of money, you know, and that they're always talking about welfare bludgers and dole cheats and, you know, the excessive amounts of money that Aboriginal services constantly get that they squander and waste. Like, there's kind of this rhetoric that goes along with the way um, the Australian uh, welfare state and social services are set up, um, which I think gives the impression sometimes that we have a much better state um, of social services than most other countries, and that is simply not true. The reality is actually quite a long way away from those myths. And to narrow it down a bit and to actually kind of put it into statistical, a sort of statistical representation, if you access the graphs that show you the way Australia is ranked in terms of social spending against the other OECD countries, there's two things that stand out. The first thing is that especially in the last couple of decades, Australia sits at the top of the pile in terms of the wealthiest countries in the OECD. So we are in like the top four, top five. Um, We are considered one of the richest countries of all the countries in the world. We're at the top of the pile. In terms of social spending, we're at the bottom. We are down at the bottom of the pile, and I'm talking like in the bottom four in terms of the amount of money that we spend on social spending. So we're down with Slovenia, um, we're down with Ireland, which as people know has been through an appalling economic crisis and their whole um, social services sector has been gutted. We're down with the United States. Um, Sometimes we're actually, well we are at the moment, we do worse than the United States. The United States in terms of um, social spending. Um, And the countries that do better than us are countries like, at the moment, Portugal and Spain, which, as people know, have just endured... Like, they've been hit the hardest by the global economic crisis. They spend more on social services and community services than what Australia does. And I think that that is pretty appalling um, when you consider a bunch of uh, factors. Firstly, that we didn't really even start to have a semi-decent community services or social services sector in Australia until the the mid-1970s. And one of the reasons for that is because of the social conservatism of the 1950s and the 1960s. So in the 50s and 60s, most of the sort of um, core services that we consider as part of the, the community sector today, they just didn't exist. So services for women, um, for women uh, that are going through unplanned pregnancies, rape and domestic violence services, um, a bunch of the Aboriginal services that exist today, Aboriginal housing, Aboriginal legal services, Aboriginal rights services, the LGBTI services that exist, housing services, youth services, a whole bunch of the community mental health services that exist today, none of these services existed really until um, sort of the mid-1970s because of the conservatism um, of the period of the 50s and 60s. And as we know, many of those services had to be fought for out of the social movements of the 60s and 70s. So... We don't really even have a community sector that's funded by the government in any substantive way until the mid-1970s. And then as the 1980s roll around um, and a neoliberal consensus begins uh, to build all around the world, that neoliberal consensus starts to trash all of those services. Um, And all of the sort of policies of privatisation and commodifying that... People start to realise, as the neoliberal consensus goes, that there's 
um, literally untapped market, um, which is that you can actually make, there's a lot of money to be made um, out of human suffering. And so that's where phrases like economic rationalism, competition, efficiency, productivity start to enter into the lexicon of social workers and psychologists and youth workers uh, and other community workers and allied health staff. Um, and just to give people or remind people um, of a kind of horrifying insight into the ideological justifications made for these neoliberal policies, I stumbled across a research paper that was done uh, in around 1998 just about the community services sector in Australia and it focused a little bit on the ideological justifications that the Howard government made for privatising community services and starting to introduce competitive tendering, which is now um, a staple aspect of the community services sector that predominates in the sector. This research paper kind of went through in broad terms how the Howard government, like the Thatcher government in Britain and, um, uh, and the Reagan government in uh, the United States and all these neoliberal warriors started to make this argument that individuals and families are responsible for the welfare and the well-being of themselves and their own members. It's a very hard ideological argument that's pushed and that was pushed by Howard and that was pushed uh, by the neoliberal governments all around the world, um, that there's some sort of moral failing in people, there's some sort of individual moral failing or fa failing of a family if they're not looking after people uh, themselves. And so this is a quote from John Howard from a speech that he gave to the Wesley Mission uh, in 1998. He referred to the need for society to, quote, understand the impact of a lessened sense of personal and family responsibility, which is a characteristic of modern Western society of the 1980s and 1990s. And then at a roundtable dinner uh, in 1998, he again referred to this responsibility Unsurprisingly, uh, when the Howard government was pushing the mutual ob obligation provisions for young people involved in the Work for the Dole program. So there's some of sort of the ideological justifications that have gone along with the territory of, like, to, to rationalise the economic decisions of pushing the costs um, of, you know, that should be socialised, you know, socialised costs back onto individuals and the families. The impact um, of these policies and these ideas is having a devastating effect on community services and social services um, in Australia now. And so just to give you a bit of an idea of how, pro how far this process of privatisation uh, and contracting out of what should be socialised services, how far that's gone, I just want to give an example before I talk about my own workplace, about what happened in New South Wales um, last year or just sort of in the last 18 months and this happened when Rosie Batty was Australian of the Year. Um, some people might remember that the bad, the, the bad Liberal government, um, although the Labor Party were planning to do this in New South Wales anyway, but when, Baird was when the Liberals were elected, in the last year or so they shut down over 80 specialised women's services in New South Wales. Now they're services that have been built up over decades that are now completely gone and they will never ever be reinstated those services. They're lost. Over 500 women workers lost their jobs and the reality of that situation is now that you can be in a certain part of New South Wales and not be able to access a women's refuge for 300 kilometres. You just can't access a refuge. It means services that were specialised like culturally specific services for women experiencing domestic violence 
services that tailored to the needs of young women, adolescent women, all sorts of specialised services have completely disappeared. And what the government did um, was to really structurally reform um, the, sec the sort of that part of the sector. So that now if you need a refuge or emergency accommodation and you're a woman with children, you can end up in a generic homelessness service. All the services are generic homelessness, homelessness services now, um, meaning that you can end up in a, a, a place with, you know, um, people that have disabilities, um, men that have serious drug and alcohol problems, men that have just come out of prison, um, you know, people with chronic health problems. Everyone is sort of lumped into the same uh, service. Um, and and that, that is a loss that will, like, that, that'll just never be turned around because the pattern of Labor governments is that they don't get elected and then overturn these decisions and reinstitute the services. They just don't do that. Um, the Liberals have taken a... The Liberals have slashed a billion dollars to community services funding since Abbott was elected. So since the Abbott government was elected, the Liberals have slashed a billion dollars um, from the community services sector and Turnbull's just slated another $3 billion to be cut um, in the next couple of years. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. And right at the moment... We're on you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we've just been hearing about the neoliberalisation of women's health with Simone White at the Marxism conference, and I'm sitting here outraged. I am. I'm outraged too. Anyway, the, it moves on. She talks about the case study of her particular service and the a direct sale to a profit-making corporation, and it's just soul destroying. I tell you what, it's unbelievable. I should just start talking about my service um, or else we're going to run out of time. But I guess I just want to do, make the point, though, that the points that were made by Eric and Cecilia are true for the community services sector in terms of the consequences for people. There's obviously the huge loss of specialist knowledge um, that just disappears. It also means that... Um, the the, it means that workers themselves end up getting paid less because you end up in jobs that are then run by, for example, the big faith-based organisations. So all the big faith-based organisations have taken over the running of women's refuge services in New South Wales and they pay their staff nothing. Um, the other thing uh, that happens is that when private... Um, private for-profit companies tender against community services to win um, contracts to run community services, they also... Um, you, I mean, you can't really compete against them as a not-for-profit because they out-tender everyone and then pay their staff nothing. So it's degrading the, the quality of the services that are provided to people, but it's also degrading the working conditions of workers um, right across the sector. Um, and it means massive job insecurity. Co competitive tendering means the government will say, we'll give you two years of funding or three years of funding, um, which means that there's all these new social workers coming out of university now who end up in a job maybe for three months and then they've got to go find another job and then they're in that for a year and then they might be in the next one for two years. How, how the fuck do you get a mortgage or plan your life when you don't know if, if you're actually you know, going to have a job? It's creating massive precarity for workers in the sector. Um, what happened to our service, as I mentioned before, is that the Liberals, they've been... When 1800 Respect the National DV and Sexual Assault Service came into being six years ago, 
what happened was that the Liberals decided to give the contract to two places, Medibank, um, the insurance company, um, but really just to provide sort of the telephony software that we, um, Rape and Domestic Violence Services, use to roll the program out, right? The executive officer of Medibank Health Services, which is a subsidiary company of Medibank, said in these words to our executive officer, you do know that we're in this to make money. That, that's what the executive officer said right from the beginning. And they have been gunning to take our service down for the last six years. Eventually, they found a brother-in-arms in Christian Porter, the Federal um, Minister for Social Services, um, who did a dirty deal um, at the beginning of last year to malign our service. Um, they came out publicly and basically said that we weren't doing a good enough job because we weren't answering all of the phone calls that were coming through. The phone calls to the service increased from 20,000 in the first year, six years ago, to 60,000, um, but the funding never increased um, to be able to actually answer all the calls. So they used this as a way of saying, you're not doing a good enough job, so we're going to give the money instead to Medibank, who now run a triage service, and I won't get into all the details of that, but basically what it means, as you can imagine, is a degraded kind of McDonald's drive-through service where they answer all the calls and they just farm people out. They're on time limits. They have to get people on and off the phone in 5, 10, 15 minutes, um, farm them out to non-existent services um, on the ground because those services are being shut down, um, and they are making a profit out of it. They made $511 million last year, Medibank Health Services, out of running our service and Beyond Blue. They run the Beyond Blue telephone helpline now. And they are in the process of grabbing a whole bunch of other community services um, in the sector. What it's really about is that the government, uh, the federal government is about to put out a massive tender for a new national health service, telephone service, a federal service, for which Bupa and Medibank are competing against each other. It's a multi-billion dollar contract. And so them taking our service is about trying to prove to the government, hey, look, we already run all these national telephone services, so you should give us that contract. Um, we obviously have decided to put up a fight. Um, and so what that means is that in the last three years... Um, I managed to uh, unionise the whole service. There were about 15 people in the union when I started working there three years ago. There's now 100 people in the union. We're all in the union. Um, all women workers. Um, our sector is not well unionised. It never really has been. And it's not well known for militant you know, industrial campaigns. It's hard to run militant industrial campaigns in our sector because it's not easy to go on strike. We don't have the same sort of industrial power as building and construction workers do, for example. But we have moral power. We have a moral authority, right? Um, and certainly with the proper backing um, of a union, I think you can uh, win over. It's really easy to win over public support, and we have won over a lot of public support. So we've done a bunch of things. We've, um, we had a big contingent to the International Women's Day march in Sydney. Uh, we've had a few other rallies. We're going to be uh, at the May Day rally in Sydney uh, this year. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we'll probably lose. I, I think that's the unfortunate reality, that we probably won't um, win our campaign. But we might get something. Um, the absolute reality was that we were screwed, that if we had not put up a fight, we would have lost absolutely everything. Um, there's a possibility now that we may retain some funding and that not everyone will lose their jobs because of the public pressure that's been brought to bear on the government. 
Um, so I guess the point is to say that you absolutely um, always should fight. This is one of those examples that of that you know that saying: if you fight, sometimes you'll win, but if you don't, you will always lose. We are the perfect example um, of that being the case. May Day Workers' Day celebration, Sunday, May the seventh. Join us to protest the anti-worker policies of the federal government and the drive to war by the U.S. administration. March with unions, Aboriginal organisations, community and ethnic communities and others. March from Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street, Carlton, 1.30pm, followed by a speaker's platform with entertainment, afternoon tea and a concert. Sunday, May the 7th, Trades Hall, 1.30 start. The May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. Yes, thanks, Billy. That's right. And we're back on live on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we've got Lou Wheeler. Hello, Lou. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And yourself, Kim? I'm good, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, of course, Lou, you're from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners and the budget's coming up. It certainly is, uh, Annie, and we've... um We've got a number of planks that we're really looking at, and one, of course, is housing. And while the um, Turnbull uh, government is uh, seems to have a tsunami of ideas about supply and particularly looking at uh, the um, young people's first-home buyers, we're also you know, terribly concerned about the affordability housing crisis and the homelessness crisis for people on low incomes, whether they're fixed or they're workers. And... Uh, that seems to be getting left behind in this conversation. So in terms of us monitoring what's going on on budget night, we'll be certainly looking to see, uh, for instance, whether the homelessness services uh, funding will be extended beyond uh, December of this year. Uh, the, uh, the government only agreed to uh, continue that funding until uh, December. And as we've just been hearing, the uh, the amount of privatisation that is going on through the welfare system and a, a redistribution of of uh, what was a community and publicly owned services for private profit is just extraordinary. Um, and so it's a time for everybody to rally and uh, not get defeated and just... You have a clear idea of what's going on because what I was saying listening to uh, Simone was that uh, it's like tooth rot. They they set a whole thing in train and until the whole structure starts to fall apart mm. and then they do a campaign that then uh, makes it possible for our for our public money to we subjugate ourselves. We pay for our own subjugation. That's, yeah, I'd agree with that. And one of the uh, uh, one of the inquiries that was uh, uh, instigated by um, Porter, the uh, Minister for Social Service, <laughs> you did, uh, was in fact to have a look at uh, reforming areas of social services and one of them uh, that they identified uh, was social housing. And um, they were looking, the brief was uh, to see whether or not you could uh, bring in more competition, uh, com- competitive contestability, 
and 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 choice, informed choice. Now, of course, we all know that that equals privatisation. Yeah, because what they're doing is they've, they've established this notion that they're all good terms. Oh, absolutely. That everything should relate to those particular terms as opposed to uh, things like getting food on the table and having a roof over your head. Mm. I was wondering, Lou, what you thought about some of the stuff the government is discussing in terms of older Australians in housing, looking at – they keep talking about they want to incentivise incentivize. Uh, incentivize, uh, people to downsize the family home. I think my first reaction was that they're assuming that elderly Australians have houses. I know a lot of women, especially single women, do not have their own home. But what did you think of uh, some of this talk? Well, we're totally concerned about it. The uh, single older women are the fastest growing area of the homeless. And we understand that because superannuation only came in in, in 1992. You had intermittent uh, workforce participation if, in fact, you were uh, looking after, you know, you were the carer. Um, and And so women could not in particularly, you know, coming up to already retired women uh, weren't in a position to either earn enough money from wages and or um, put enough money into super. It just wasn't around when, uh, and I'm one of those people, I don't have superannuation. And um, so, yes, uh, something else goes wrong in the family and then you're out on the street and that's exactly what's happening. And what we say is Fair Go is pushing. We want reinvestment in public housing stock public housing because it's capped at either 25% of income, which is affordable. Some of the community housing is in fact got a cap at 80%. So it's just 20% below private market uh, But also that's a, that's a sham, that notion of uh, percentage of income. All they have to do is say your income has to be at least this level. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so, of course, that becomes unaffordable for people who are, say, on pensions. Mm, that's right. I think as well it's about that community housing is about privatisation because basically what they do is that they give public property to private organisations. So NGOs are private organisations and you know, perhaps they run it for social housing today, but what do they do in the future? No, make, well, it's one yeah, yeah. step towards privatisation, no, in my no, opinion. No, but, no, but, but the point is that uh, what they've done is just used a publicity campaign. They've cha- rebadged things. They've said social housing. They've called it community housing. And people in the public think that, one, it's for the good, and, two, that it's just a replacement for public housing. I mean, it's not public housing. In public housing, you have to actually, uh, your responsibility, society's responsibility. So it's the difference between this uh, Howardism of individualism and social uh, social uh, cohesion, isn't oh, it? Well, I think it, yeah, it's that, but it's also, I mean, we, we are looking at public assets being transferred to private and at the moment that is non, not-for-profit, non-government uh, areas, secular and or um, faith, faith-based. However, as I say, this inquiry that's been set up and has already reported about the fact that social housing, which is community plus public, is a uh, ripe for this new... Ah, so it's even worse. Oh, it, it is. It absolutely is. And what it gets lost not only with the asset of public housing is the services that are around public housing. There are 
a whole bevy of services that you need, health, dental, <laughs> counselling, uh, financial aid, whatever. Those services are usually right around, like the purpose-built one in um, around the public housing in North Richmond, the marvellous um, comprehensive services. That's what also gets lost in what we're talking about here. And people who are in public housing often do need um, those services to help them um, get back on their feet and to um, get trained and get back into the workforce if they um, no, are younger than, um, you know, workforce age. And, of course, what we know with older uh, people in uh, needing public and affordable housing, half of them are from non-English-speaking background, and um, even more appalling is the fact that 25% um, of um, um, of homeless people are Torres, Torres Strait Islanders, uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders represent, you know, much more than their population base, 25%, and it's extraordinarily high. So, you know, the problems are so severe, and what we want with that budget is a commitment from the government that there will be money provided to the services around homelessness and, well, oh, we'd be pushing, of course, for a reinvestment in public housing. I think one of the other problems that lost with public housing um, is the fact that we, um, years ago, I think about 2009, people went to rent subsidies. Now, over this period, $9 billion has been lost. Imagine if that had been put into public, increasing new public housing stock rather than a, a, a rent subsidy, but that we actually provided the houses for people and we did cap at 25% of your fixed income, right? Like it was public, it's not any sort of private deal. So we're looking at some of those. Uh, well, we'd be pushing for them um, or fighting back against what is proposed under these uh, this inquiry that's taken place and more and more stock going over to community housing from public housing. I think this is really important as well because actually if they did genu- genuinely want to decrease private rents, then... All the evidence says that they should invest in public housing because that is what would actually bring down private rent. As I wanted to ask you about utility prices, that's another huge area that's been privatised is the energy market and we've seen some of the ridiculous energy shortages that we have in this country even though we export energy overseas because it's a private market. But the prices of electricity are... I mean, I find them onerous and I'm sure that pensioners find them onerous. What's uh, your... Experience with that? Well, again, um, you know, we never thought that hunger and starvation would be part of the so called wealthy and lucky country. And, and basically, that's what we're seeing. You cannot have a fixed income or be a worker on low income. A, a third of uh, people living in poverty are, in fact, working. Um, they're poor, you know, they're poor because they just get absolute minimum wages. Um, and so if you get um, a $300 increase in your energy bill, Wage growth is stalled. It, uh, it, it's the lowest in years. It's not keeping up uh, with inflation. And so where do you go if you're working? If you're on fixed income, well, you go absolutely backwards. And that's exactly what we're hearing. Um, and again, uh, a report that was done a couple of years ago, the hardship provisions, are, are, you know, the growth in that is absolutely uh, increased exponentially. And we've we've had something like in Victoria alone, fifty eight thousand people were disconnected from their energy supply. Fifty fifty eight thousand in the year in uh, thirteen fourteen. Um, now. Wow. 
Yeah, and there was a something, and and about triple the number were actually wrongfully disconnected as well. But I mean, in in our country, people are being disconnected from their sources of energy. It is absolutely extraordinary. So again, you know, we're looking to try and do something about that. And I just want to remind people: it was the Kennett government that. Um, Privatized under you know two or three um, tranches uh, tranches in uh, in the early nineties electricity and just think back on that the, what's happened since um, that made a profit for to go back into the public assets and ever since um, we've we've seen higher and higher prices and what Kim was just explaining now where we're in a, a total and utter. Uh, situation where our energy sources are being exported overseas at at lower prices and um, the idea that we can actually source our um, energy supplies from overseas at a lower cost and bring it back so we can afford it on the domestic market. It's totally extraordinary. Um, What what are you hearing? Uh, What are your expectations about uh, Turnbull's next budget? Well, you see, who would know? It's such a muddle, isn't it? You, um, there seems to be a different uh, point of view every second day. They seem to be t- changing position because the infighting is just so extreme. Um, I mean, the thing that we're hearing is that they're trying to get together um, a national energy plan that will, in fact, protect domestic supply. Now, whether or not that translates... What, as well as, <laughs> as, well as pay all those shareholders in the back Oh, cash. well, you see. <laughs> oh, this is the tricky bit. <laughs> oh, I understand that. So, but, you know, all we can do is look to see, you know, what are they going to deliver? Is it going to reduce prices for people? Are they going to, for instance, reinstall the National Partnership Agreement on Certain Concessions for Pensioners. Now, that had was to run for until um, June of uh, last year. It had two years to run when they axed it under the, you know, the, the Abbott government's cuts. Um, that would, in terms of Victoria, that supplied $80 million a year to help fund um, municipal rates, energy, uh, motor vehicle and public transport, extraordinarily important concessions. They just axed it. Nobody even knew, left it, dumped it onto the states and territories to, to you know, find their own way through this and they had the choice of just abolishing concessions, um, trying to maintain them you know, or sort of, reducing them. Sounds like they're incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't be. <laughs> couldn't be. We couldn't have a government that doesn't so, know how to govern. Yeah. Oh, well, that, exactly right. So what we're trying to do is push again, and we're, you know, we're meaning a coalition of a, a wide range of community and union groups uh, working on this to try and get that those uh, concessions reinstated at the federal level, and then at the state level we'll be looking to see whether the state has maintained the concessions uh, for people because even $1, if you are that poor, a dollar means a hundred dollars. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And 20 cents is like five or ten dollars. And for people, you know, to lose even a dollar is just appalling. And the visible sign of it, just walk down the CBDs in any state in Australia and there is your visible proof of what's going on here. People sleeping rough on the streets. In the Melbourne CBD, 200 people a night sleeping rough, 1,300 homeless a night just in the Melbourne CBD, 22,000 across Victoria, 108,000 across Australia. 
So these are the sorts of difficulties we're having. And then we come to income security where you've got uh, pensioners are scared of losing uh, their clean energy supplement that would be up to $14 a fortnight. Now, that has we've been assured that that's not happening, that's off the table. Well, we know how many things are off the table that suddenly come back into the budgets, so we're keeping a close watch on that. But for many other people, you know, family benefits, their their uh, new recipients after September of this year will lose that uh, clean energy supplement. New start is $267 a week. Um, $160 a week below the poverty line. People are starving. And yet we're saying to them, go out and find a job. Well, there's only one job for every 11 people unemployed. So how does that work? And you get people running around being told they've got to work for the doll. They work for nothing. uh, Oh, Mm. not out. Yes, well, that's a good idea, isn't it? Uh, And again, you know, you live on fresh air, basically. And uh, I mean, what we're saying is the 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 stress on all of this, and of course, is just um, leading to further and further mental and uh, physical health problems. So, you know, income support at the moment is making people sick. Lou, uh, how do people get in contact with Fair Go for Pensioners? Um, there's a mobile number. It's o four double seven two three six double eight zero. Or if you are online, then you can uh, look us up on um, our website. Uh, there's a whole range of numbers on that. And um, yes, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having us. CCR presents a great night of entertainment at Bella Union, Thursday the 27th of April. Jonathan Alley will MC a stellar lineup, including... 3CR DJs Kate and Susie spinning tracks for a lazy Thursday night. Fiona Scott Norman's one-woman show, The Needle and the Damage Done. Ian McFarlane's book launch of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop Music. And an unleashed version of Super Flutie's free association radio show, with Clem Basto, Casey Bonetto, Scott Edgar and Christos Chorkas. That's Saturday the 27th Thursday, the 27th of April, Bella Union at Trades Hall. Doors open at 6.30. For tickets, go to bellaunion.com.au or at the door if not sold out. This is a 3CR benefit. So see you there. And we've got Kevin on the line. Ooh. Hello, Kevin. How are you? <laughs> All right. I'm alive again this week. That's right. Um, Good morning. Still alive. Morning, Kim. How are you? Good, Actually, thank you. I mean, it's interesting in the segues this morning because you talked about um, the contracting out, and of course, um, it's appropriate for uh, for Beyond Blue to be contracted out because it was Kenneth who started the whole process of contracting out when people actually were contracting for their own jobs and cutting their own wages and conditions. And, uh, of course, he also brought all that depression upon people anyway. Um, and it leads into the fact that they're also now contracting out public housing as the last interview. So it all, it all links up, doesn't it? It certainly does, Ollie. <laughs> I'll leave you to it. Here we go. Yeah, a weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the government abandoned the 457 temporary skilled worker visa and replaced it with a temporary skilled worker visa, a massive change which involves dropping the 457 bit. 
This way, big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull explained the logic, selfish bludging on our goodness 457 workers will not be able to rip off caring employers good enough, kind enough to give them an opportunity and will silence the evil union's false accusations that caring employers exploit workers under the 457 visa. Instead, the Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Peter Duffer adopted that highly intelligent look. They'll be able to exploit them under... Ouch! Ouch! Malcolm, you kicked me! Malcolm said allowing temporary skilled workers under the not-457 temporary skilled worker visa would mean jobs, jobs, jobs for true blue Aussies. At which point, some sort of explanation might have helped. Presumably, they'll all have to all they have to do is head overseas somewhere and hope they get picked up by a caring employer. And just as presumably, at some point, they'll have to head back overseas to where they didn't come from when the visa expires. But the grand announcement shows Malcolm's right on top of his jobs and growth campaign. And on a related matter, the government has asked us for ideas on what questions potential true blue Aussies should be asked. Peter Duffer telling us brilliant ideas like, when is it okay to beat your wife? And when is female genital mutilation okay? And when is preventing girls having an education okay? And when is forcing them to marry okay, had absolutely nothing to do with Islamophobia, were not aimed at any particular group. <laughs> Who could possibly imagine such a thing? They obviously just popped into Duffer's head. But anyway, I think a must for the list would be, what do you have to be to become Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats? A, a roaring idiot. B, a monumental moron. C, unbelievably stupid, or D, the most mindless person in the caring business class party room? The answer, of course, well, it's obvious, isn't it, is A, B, and C, which are almost tautological. D, the most mindless in the party, also possible, but given the quality of the others, we can't be definitive. In fact, if Duffer is one of the, one of the most capable ministerial candidates on offer, the mind boggles at what the most lowly backbencher must be like. What depths? Then again, tiny a bit more for the bosses is back there, so we've got some idea. The questions must also elicit that the potential True Blue Aussie shares our great cherished True Blue Aussie values, and we suggest they, the potential True Blue Aussies, just absorb the blanket news in the next few unbearable days, and they'll have the answer down pat, or down Abdal, or down Fatima, or whatever. To appreciate, to practice the great cherished True Blue Aussie values, we must invade a country on the other side of the world in a military catastrophe, which, when we come to think of it, is why we fled here in the first place. How exciting. We're here because of the great cherished True Blue Aussie values we love. Invade, 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 kill, kill, kill. Let's go. And back where our great cherished values were honed in slaughter and disaster, listener, hands up. Well, one hand will do. Hand up. If you thought for even the proverbial one second that so-called referendum in Turkey would not support big supremo, now even bigger supremo, recept, tie him up, herd him up again. Oh, your hand shot up. 
you cynic. What would lead us to think such perfidious treasonous? Well, such thoughts would be treason in Turkey. Subject to the death penalty, heard him up again, wants to reintroduce such treasonous thoughts. After all, the no vote got a mention on the news when heard him up again said to vote no was anti-Turkey and anti-himself. Same thing. And anyway, the losers who have this poor loser idea it might have been rigged have a right to appeal to the electoral commission appointed by Heard Him Up Again. And if they lose there, they can appeal to the judges. Also appointed by Heard Him Up Again, so it's hard to see how people could think the result was a foregone conclusion, even if Heard Him Up Again did celebrate his victory while the votes were still being cast. He just knew, like Peter Ustinov, flourishing his toga as Nero in quote about us all those years ago how the people love me the much loved heard him up again a wise wise man knows that democracy liberty demand the removal of democracy and liberty ensuring they won't be abused and we can guarantee he will respect the freedom bit of liberty freedom and the freedom of capital bit Meanwhile, the onerous task of being the universal protector of liberty, freedom and democracy becomes more onerous by the day. Evil Russian spies one week, evil Syria's terrorist government another week, evil North Korea's bonfire night skyrockets every week, and now Iran, evil, evil Iran, as the US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for World State Rex Killam's son declared... Iran, the biggest threat to peace in the whole world, and no one is more qualified to know that because the US of has trained killers and merchants of death merchandise all over the world to ensure that peace, often forced to use the merchants of death merchandise to maintain the peace, although big supremo Donald Trump or the poor did get a bit confused this week after he said an armada of merchants of death merchandise, including this huge aircraft carrier brimming with peace-loving train-killer material, was nuclear-powering its way to keep those bonfire night skyrockets in their place, but discovered it was actually heading to True Blue Aussie, presumably to keep us in our place. Maybe they too heard that big economic guru scuttled them more less than is a closet commie. No, no, it's true. We're coming to that. Making True Blue Aussie a threat to that freedom of capital bit. Whatever. Donald got a bit confused when told the Armada was really heading this way. True Blue Aussie, is that a different direction? He showed why his rational finger on the nuclear button. The Socialist Party has just released its solution to this affordable housing problem. Surely it should be called the unaffordable housing problem, but I quibble. Just released, and being the Socialist Party, we can guarantee the policy will hinge around utilising the trillions government spend on housing to build and or buy lots and lots and lots of public housing rather than wasting it on private market solutions. But let's confirm that. Let's see. Page one. No, not there, but, but page two, oh, market forces, pa page three. Look, I'd better move on, but we'll find it. It's here somewhere. And speaking of the aforementioned former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, we reported last week scuttled them, who has to sort all this affordable, unaffordable housing mess out. 
Well, slight diversion. Also mentioned last week, poor Scuttlebem had been scuttled by, quote, Conservatives in the Cabinet, implying Scuttlebem is not a Conservative. So apparently, uh, and until this revelation, we'd never have known, Scuttlebem is some sort of closet commie, at which we have to admit he's doing a brilliant job at the closet bit. But back to, we reported Scuttlebem apparently has, has, well, had a regular spot on Sydney commercial shock jock Ray Loudley's program where he had no risk of being asked anything remotely difficult but upset the shock jock by doing an ABC interview. I won't be treated like an idiot. Ray was angry. Well, this week, speaking of idiots, Ray dumped Scuttlebem and replaced him with Tiny, who will devote his fortnightly friendly grilling from Ray to urging the nation to get behind Malcolm. What a pity we can't pick up Ray's program here in intellectually deprived Melbourne. Thankfully, we won't be intellectually deprived in the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country election coverage of the opposition leader. Well, we've already been told he wants to redistribute wealth to the disadvantaged, to the workers who produce it and tax the rich, making him unelectable. The disadvantaged, the workers, don't want some false class war maverick to redistributing wealth to them. They want Theresa May not, who promised she wouldn't call the election she called, who will guarantee the sensible status quo distribution of wealth. Ah, oh, with a bit more distribution to the rich so the poor can be better off. Logic also runs riot when it comes to our politicians. Led this week by, well, he's right up there every week, Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, who attacked those anti-true blue Aussie, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron lots, who oppose jobs and prosperity, who oppose the government for providing a few trillion sensible taxpayers' funds to public transport, well, well, private public transport, to get the Adani this heat, biggest coal mine in the country, coal mine mining. Good, clean, lifting the poor out of poverty coal, which would open the way to more and more clean coal mines, providing jobs and jobs and jobs and prosperity and prosperity and prosperity for true blue Aussies. So finally, how dare the long-haired commie lots abuse the law, waste hard-earned taxpayers' funds on points of law, worse, win the cases on points of law, forcing the poor government to act on Adani this heat's behalf and change the law. How dare Aboriginal communities abuse their native title rights by believing that gives them some rights. For Barnacle knows jobs and prosperity will flourish right up to the end of the planet. He's logical. Good morning. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C. Hello, and you're back with Annie and Kim. We've been trying to raise Dr. Noah, but he's actually off doing something other than waiting for our phone call by the sounds of it. But by the by, we've got plenty to talk about. 
We uh, had an ad earlier on about May Day, and we'll pay mm. that again. But uh, there, that's for May the 7th. There's going to be activities, marches, uh, entertainments, a morning t- uh, afternoon tea, sorry, one thirty outside the Victorian Trades Hall. They're going to march through the city, and then they're going to go back, and they're going to talk, and they're going to have carousing and general Rubble good rousing. fun. <laughs> general good fun at uh, the uh, Workers' Day celebration. But that's going to be on May the 7th. That's Sunday, 1.30, uh, outside, the, starting at the Victorian Trades Hall. Which, Where else? Yeah. And it's on the corner of Victoria Parade and uh, Ligon Street. Yeah, that's mm. right. And uh, so, but the stores are going to do activities on the real day, on May the 1st. Yeah, so if you can get along on the actual day, one day we're going to reclaim it and there will be industrial action on May the 1st. Which is Monday this year. Yes, which is Monday this year. There is an event organised at the eight-hour day monument, uh, which is to assemble at 12pm on May the 1st. Um, And that is an event of the Melbourne Anarchists Club, That's right. And so, ju- if you can get down, yeah, and uh, that that of course is across the road from uh, Trades Hall. Yes, yes, and uh, he just uh, Joe was telling me uh, that uh, he he thought it was a, a, uh, probably stealing some thunder, but he he said it was really funny because uh, it took ages before that monument was actually put up. There was, the first one was in Ballarat, and the uh, in uh, they started collecting money because it all started in eighteen fifty five, that sort of date, mm. and uh, it took till nineteen o three before that monument was actually collect uh, actually put up because it was the stonemasons at Melbourne Uni, and there's a little plaque in the old quadrangle that people will sometimes ask about. Yeah. That is where they down tools and they march to Trades Hall where the eight-hour yeah. day monument now is. That's right. And it's not just eight hours day It's uh, for work. It's eight hours day for work, eight hours for uh, recreation and eight hours for sleep. So it's about having a balanced life which I think is pretty fascinating. It's not quite the same as uh, we kind of think. And they also uh, did it in relation to the idea of if you worked eight hours a day, that meant that more people could get jobs. Yes. And, I mean, it's the same issue today, isn't it? There's a bunch of people, you know, construction workers and so on, who would love to. They'd give up some money. You know, this is often you hear, give up a bit of money so that they could work less and, you know, spend time with friends and family. And then there's a whole lot of people who are underemployed. That's right. Go figure. But anyway, the the punchline to what Joe was telling me was that the reason for why it took so long for the um, memorial to be built was because the money kept getting stolen. Really? <laughs> I don't know. I was I was theorising that this was because food on the table was probably more important than a monument. What do you reckon? I mean, that sounds sensible, times. but it was just nicked. Nicked. Yeah. Anyway, but there's another thing going on on May the day the 1st uh, is at 5.30pm at the State Library, Swanston Street, Melbourne, uh, the Australian Workers, Asia uh, Workers Links. Um, they're, they've organised and 
uh, uh, gathering. Uh, no ifs, no buts. Stop the attacks. Solidarity rally with our brothers and sisters on the streets fighting for workers' rights, freedom and justice in every country. No war, no fascism, no genocide, no border wars, no internment camps, no de- deportation. And there's an awful lot of no's. No intervention, no torture, no rape, no repression, no racism, no sexism. And you can be part of this. Uh, global strikes and picket lines against the capitalist exploiters. Workers of the world unite. Workers change the world. Monday the 1st of May. 5.30pm, State Library, Swanston Street, Melbourne. You can be part of it. You can be part of the uh, change. Be part of, be on the right part of uh, side of history. May Day Workers' Day celebration, Sunday, May the 7th. Join us to protest the anti-worker policies of the federal government and the drive to war by the US administration. March with unions, Aboriginal organisations, community and ethnic communities and others. March from Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street, Carlton, 1.30pm, followed by a speaker's platform with entertainment, afternoon tea and a concert. Sunday, May the 7th, Trades Hall, 1.30 start. The May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. The Setting Sun Short Film Festival in its fourth year at the Sun Theatre Yarraville, April the 27th to the 30th. Featuring film categories and awards for the best in the West, the best overall, women filmmakers program, free children's program and more from some of Melbourne's best and award-winning filmmakers. Come on opening night, enjoy a free glass of bubbles and a comedy set by Janet McLeod from Cinema Fiasco. The Setting Sun Short Film Festival, where dreams are made. April the 27th to 30th. Free program and book tickets, settingsun.com.au. Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we were saying earlier that uh, we went to the Marxist Conference 2017 and uh, you were able to say that uh, there was at least the same amount of people this year, big number. I think there, there were actually more people this this year. Yeah, and I was quite interested every time I spoke to anybody, they came from somewhere else. It wasn't I just know, Melbourne people. comes from interstate and I met one... One man who had actually come from Tampa, USA. <laughs> really? Yeah, just completely off his own his own bat. One of his friends found this Marxism conference in Australia, and he came. Oh, that's fantastic! Which I thought was just incredible, and I wish that I was thinking at your age. I really wish that I was just doing that kind of Marxism conference, hopping around the world. And what was his impression? Well, first he got on my good side by saying that he had first arrived in Sydney, but he hadn't made any friends until he came to Melbourne. <laughs> uh, his his impression was that we were all really friendly, which, you know, I think we that are. socialists are, yes. Oh, everyone was practising very well. Everyone yeah. spoke. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that he was someone who he had all these, you know, amazing pictures of himself at all these rallies we've heard about in Australia, like the, you know, going down to the airports to stop the ban on Muslims and, and in the US. And... 
that he hadn't really been introduced to Marxist politics. So I, f- I felt like he seemed to be speaking about it as if it were a framework or tools that he felt like he could go back and talk to people who uh, who he knew about sort of formal politics, a way of, well, not formal, you know, but informal politics, a way of analysing the world and the struggles in the US at the moment. So he seemed to get a lot out of it. Yeah, that's really interesting because there were various streams in the conference, as there always is, and one of them is Marxism 101. Mm. Yeah, which is quite fascinating. Uh, also, uh, the uh, information that came out of uh, the uh, neoliberalisation of our health system was uh, part of the current issues uh, stream, which was uh, fascinating to me, especially workers' rights, that kind of thing. So, the, I mean, there were so many things that you would be constantly uh, grappling to see which things to go to. Uh, we're, next week, we're actually going to uh, play as the session that uh, came from uh, Corey uh, Peterson Smith uh, around um, the response to uh, Trump. And it includes those demonstrations, uh, eyewitness accounts to uh, the Women's March, the uh, huge group of people that came out for the uh, anti-inauguration march, you know, and uh, also the the things that happened spontaneously around uh, the airports, which... uh, were huge uh, in terms of the political landscape of uh, America. One of the things that's uh, just on that particular thing about responses in America is that one of the latest pieces of news is uh, a fracas that happened on the campus of uh, Berkeley. Mm. Yeah, between uh, anti-fascists and fascists which uh, has been characterised as uh, anti-Trump, but uh, uh, political groupings have made it quite clear that it was about anti-fascism. Yeah, it's scary because we were talking about this with Curry. is that, you know, there's an economic crisis in America or there's been a deeper economic crisis in America that Australia has so far managed to miss. But even in Australia, there were all those incidents of... Uh, racist posters being plastered up around Melbourne University and yes. things like that. So it's very it's very worrying and we can draw connections and we can look to inspiration when our own far right, even short of an economic crisis, seems to be asserting itself in very small ways. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and it was really interesting to see how people were uh, fascinated uh, looking for uh, – collective action and political tools. Mm. I I went to a session that uh, I really wanted to talk about, which was uh, there was a series of one of the streams was uh, real films, real reels, real reels. Um, Anyway, politically uh, motivated films, films about important things. And one of them was called Servant or Slave, and it was an incredibly moving, um, not a dry eye in the house. It was mm. a, an hour-long film and it was actually exploring the experiences of various aunties who had been little kids uh, who had been taken away, just, you know, the black car coming along and they were stolen from their parents and uh, put into homes and then they, beca- they were trained up to be basically slaves. 
and the uh, outcomes for for them and uh, the drawing of the conclusion that the the fusing of uh, the stolen generation stolen children and uh, uh, stolen wages how those two things are completely fused. There were some aunties there who talked that who were starred in the film as it were. And uh, it left you with this dreadful feeling of dest- uh, destruction of family, their inability to have connection with children. Uh, you know, it goes on generationally. And uh, the idea that uh, people were doing them a favour is... It was really, really freakish film. And it's I really recommend people to watch it because it really gives you a very clear idea of what really did happen. I think that it's so important because a lot of the time people will accept that Australia has a brutal history towards Indigenous people, but they often don't think of Australia as having a history of slavery, and we absolutely do. Yeah, I know. And it was just really shocking because of the sense of, uh, of uh, oh, it's just awful. It was just really awful because, you know, the, the looming nature of a black car going around the districts trying to find any kid that isn't being protected, you know, like he's playing in the dirt, you know, like doing what kids do. And just being suddenly, and you imagine if you were a three-year-old or whatever, just being gathered up. And the state could do that to you. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Horrifying. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community. And we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our local community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash survey or call the station during business hours to organise to do the survey over the phone. Call 9419 G'day, you're back again with Annie and Kim. And uh, before we go on with our uh, uh, critique of uh, fond memories of Marxism 2017, uh, thanks to a listener who's uh, rung up and wants to let you know about a rally. Uh, it starts at 1pm and goes for four to 4pm 4 today. Uh, it's on the State Library of Victoria Lawns. That's in Swanston Street. Auslan interpreters are available uh it's uh it's a um march oh they're not telling me what it actually is at the march it's got a whole lot of things happening but it doesn't tell me oh uh it's uh, hold on uh it's a march for science march for science melbourne program and itinerary well march for science no, obviously, March science is under threat. It took me a long time to find that. You know, I, I will tell you out there, listeners, if you've got an event coming, who, what, when, why and how is the key to getting a message across. But uh, we will persevere. March for science is happening and we all know that science is under attack. They've got a rally going on today and it goes from 1pm to 4pm. It's outside the State Library of Victoria. Obviously, there's lots of things happening. At the end of the march and after much entertainment and relaxation at the gardens, because they're going to the Treasury Gardens at the end, 
Uh, we encourage everyone to mingle at the Bull and Bear, to mingle with your fellow scientists and science supporters, as well as to connect with individuals and organisations. It sounds like the scientists are all out. They're free and loose on this Saturday, and they're asking you to come with them. They're starting off at the State Library at 1. They're going to go to the Treasury Gardens, calling loud and clear that science is important, and then they're going to carouse in the Treasury Gardens till 4, and then they're going to go to the pub as a good, honest scientist always do, and they're going to keep talking to the wee hours. So that's the bull and bear afterwards. So you can go and mingle to your heart's content. You went off to uh, another film program at uh, Marxist Conference. Yes, it was the only one that I uh, got to go along to, but it was Liam Ward's session, and it was film from the Russian Revolution uh, and of course, that's the anniversary. The anniversary on the on the hundredth uh, year anniversary. And one thing that I found out there before I talk a bit about the content was that because of the economic blockade in Russia, it was very difficult to get film. And the new Soviet government thought that actually film was incredibly important in a place like Russia, where there was well, very little huge. literacy. It's huge, and the connecting points were the railways, right? Yes, and so they used to uh, take films and literature to the masses via these amazing carriages that could actually produce film uh, themselves. But one thing that they invented, which was incredible but also really heartbreaking, is that because of this economic blockade, they found a way to use chemicals to delete film so that they, they could reuse it, oh. which is very innovative, but it's the reason why we don't have all this film from the Russian Revolution where we lost a lot. So, yeah, it's both uh, shows the ingenuity but also the heartbreak. But what really struck me about... That's fascinating. ...about the images and about the narrative from it was that a lot of it was about the German Revolution. Ah. Actually. So that's what the... Images that so were being did put the German out. Revolution predates the Russian Revolution? No, no, it happened afterwards. Afterwards. So from about 1918 to 1923 or four, And this is what... And this is what after they had the war. Yes. So it was part of ending the war. I think it started with, if um, I remember from my reading, started with sailors mutinying and soldiers mutinying. Yep. And there's all these images of the Russian troops and the German troops fraternising, <laughs> which is really amazing. And, of course, they're just like we are now. As soon as you put a camera in front of someone, they start acting really awkward, which is really adorable. Yeah. But there's also all these images of them sending German uh, prisoners and refugees home because, of course, the Russians, even though they were meant to be keeping up the war with the imperialist powers, let them go. And they're just handing out all these... Uh, leaflets to them about, you know, revolutionary propaganda and they're grabbing them up and taking them home. And it's just interesting because Liam was giving some context saying that actually a lot of the soldiers who came back, uh, the German regime was complaining that they were coming back radicalised. Yes. But it just shows you the... What I found really poignant was the attitude that we have to refugees now, obviously not us, you know, the left... Personally. Personally, but... And the way that they were being welcomed and looked after and given aid in Russia at a time where they had very, very little. So I think, you know, politics is important and can change. But what really broke my heart was that the last image was actually of all these workers coming out into the street and what they were coming out for was they'd just heard about 
the murder of Rosa Luxemburg uh, and Karl Liebenich, the yes. uh, revolutionaries in Germany, and they were mourning them. Oh, so so tragic, so tragic, and uh, uh, it also very important to realise. And I, and I remember thinking when I was collecting information about uh, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and other revolutionaries, people who were incredible people, that that period of history, uh, people actually were ready for the revolution and how close it was and why the um, Americans, for example, American capitalist class was so savage against their workers right through the 20s and 30s and, of course, also in uh, uh, Australia as well, that uh, people need to grasp the history and the actual lifeblood of the working community. Mm, and, and internationalism. Yes, to understand that, uh, as was pointed out by uh, a person we spoke to, an economist from uh, Newcastle uh, University, uh, Bill Mitchell, that uh, actually neoliberalism isn't globalisation. No. It's not the same thing. People need to get a grip and understand this. I'll leave you. We're going to go. We're going to go now because uh, those Asia-Pacific currents people are pushing at the door. And uh, But before we do, we're going to remind you about May Day. We're going to then go out with this fantastic piece from this group of people called the Zen Circus and Brian Rich. They're really crazy. So <laughs> I'll prepare myself. Yeah. May Day Workers' Day celebration, Sunday, May the 7th. Join us to protest the anti-worker policies of the federal government and the drive to war by the US administration. March with unions, Aboriginal organisations, community and ethnic communities and others. March from Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street, Carlton, 1.30pm, followed by a speaker's platform with entertainment, afternoon tea and a concert. Sunday, May the 7th, Trades Hall, 1.30 start. The May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.